This morning we're going to continue our series, Encounters with God, where we have looked at various well-known Bible characters and their life-changing experience before God. So it certainly has been a blessing to me as I've prepared them and hopefully it's been a blessing to you as as you have uh, heard it and taken it in and, and being a, a motive for meditation and thanksgiving to God for the fact that so many of these these men had these that privilege of having this encounter with God. And we all have a, a we all I'm sure have a story of encounter with God. Some would be more dramatic than others. And these are the type of stories that we need to share to encourage one another, to build each other up. And all of our stories will be very different. Our backgrounds will be different. And the story I'm going to be sharing this morning is a little bit of myself, but we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul today and next week. So the Damascus Road experience we're going to leave to next week, unless the Lord returns, of course. Count it all as loss. Uh, these, these two weeks, this is what we're going to call it. And it is impossible to overestimate the influence of the Apostle Paul on the Christian faith. His inspired writings cover a large portion of the New Testament. And it is safe to say that he remains one of the most read authors, not just in Christianity, but in all of human history. He is the greatest Christian missionary who really took to heart the Great Commission from Matthew 28. But as we know, he didn't start out that way. There was a dramatic event in his life where he turned from zealous persecutor of the Christian faith to one of Christianity's greatest proponents. And it was a dramatic encounter with Christ that made all the difference. But who was Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul? What do we know about his life prior to meeting Christ on the road to Damascus? Now, his youth years are somewhat obscure and there are many gaps. But we are still able to join some of the dots. One thing is certain. He who began as a persecutor ended up a martyr for Christ and Christ used him to change not just countless lives but the course of history as well. This is why I'm saying we cannot overestimate his influence on, on our civilization. One of the interesting assumptions, before I move on, one of the interesting assumptions that we make is that Saul became Paul after his conversion. But there is no scriptural evidence for this. You know how sometimes there are name changes? Simon, Peter that type of thing. There is no evidence for this. In fact, after his conversion, he is Saul, he is called Saul 11 more times. Uh, So it appears that Paul, which actually means little, is merely the Greek or Latin form for his Hebrew name, 
Saul, which means desired, and has nothing to do with his conversion. Let's just put that out there, okay? So let's look at, first of all, his early life. Saul, or Paul, was born a few years after Christ, in approximately AD 5, five years after the birth of Christ, in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is part of uh, modern-day Turkey. Now, it was a renowned Grecian commercial and literary city. We're not going to call it a Greek city because by that stage the Greek Empire had had, uh, been overcome by the, the Roman, but it still had large Greek influence. So it was this big Grecian commercial literary university city of learning. It was also the seat of one of the, the three universities of the Roman Empire where they trained tutors to the imperial family. Now, we don't know for sure how or when Paul's family arrived in Tarsus, but we do know they were amongst the many Jews who were already living outside of Israel. Now, in the ancient world, we're not talking today, but in the ancient world, there were roughly six million Jewish people about, and five million of these were already scattered or lived outside of what we now know as the land of Israel. The fact that Paul, born a Jew, yet lived outside of Israel, was quite common. Now, he was born to Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship. This was a much coveted privilege that their son would also possess. And his early learning would have been done there in in Tarsus, and, and this is where he gained a knowledge uh, of the Greek language. Now, his strict Jewish parents would have wanted him to receive uh, a learned, learned uh, Jewish education of the highest order. So it appears that by about 15 to 20 AD, uh, Saul's family moved to Jerusalem so Saul could begin his studies in the Hebrew Scriptures in Jerusalem under a well-known rabbi named Gamaliel. So this is how he would begin his in-depth study of the law, of the law of the Old Testament, with this famous rabbi. And this is what he wrote in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22, verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous as any of you are here today. So this whole immigration thing, many of us here are immigrants. This whole immigration thing has been happening since the year dot. So this whole thing about, ah, go back to where you come from. Well, what does that mean? And as it is often the case, people tend to migrate for various reasons. And they tend to do it with their whole family. Eventually, after the first generation settles down somewhere, the second generation marry and they have their own kids, 
and then eventually they might move elsewhere again. We know that Paul's sister's son or his nephew, for example, was in Jerusalem after Paul's conversion. Uh, This was providential under God's care. This was providential because God would use this circumstance for his glory. And this is what we read in Acts 23.16. But when the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of the plot, the plot to get rid of Paul, kill him, he went into the barracks, into the prison, and told Paul. So this is further confirmation that Paul's entire family had moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem. It's further confirmation when he was, he was young or in his teenage years. Now, his mixed upbringing, his exposure to all of these cultures would be a real asset for his ministry later on. And even though he was a strict Jew and educated as such, he was very well versed in Greek culture. He knew what made them tick. To top it off, he was a Roman citizen. And Paul therefore had the perfect combination of the three great nationalities of the ancient world. Someone put it this way, he had a Semitic fervour, a Greek versatility and Roman energy. Now this Paul, not that Paul, but this Paul, also known as Little, uh, also struggled with the mix of cultures in my upbringing. Some of you know my story. My father is Ukrainian but his birth certificate says he was born in Poland because the territory was occupied by the Polish at the time. When he was six, just before World War II in 1939, he migrated with his family to Paraguay and settled in a Ukrainian farming community. Uh, He wouldn't learn the Spanish language because they all spoke Ukrainian. He wouldn't learn the Spanish language until in his late teenage years. Eventually, he met my mother, who was born in Paraguay. Her father was Italian. Her mother was Czech, even though her mother, my grandmother, her birth, my my grandmother's certificate says Austrian, because at that time, Czechoslovakia was occupied by the Austrian Empire. Are you keeping up with all this? (laughs) Now, when I grew up in Paraguay, there were quite a lot of, we weren't the only immigrants, there were quite a lot of different nationalities about, a lot of European immigrants at that time. But I still got picked on in Paraguay because of my white skin colour, my surname and my big feet. I was 14, just think about it, I was 14 and my, the size of my feet were 14 as well. So when they say don't act your age or your shoe size, whatever, then, then it doesn't, what does that mean? Right. So I couldn't find shoes in Paraguay. That was one of my biggest issues because my feet were just too big. So I got picked on because of that quite a bit. And, and the, the, the Paraguay, there's another language in Paraguay, it's a native language, which is the Guarani language, which I also learned to 
speak it enough. Um, and it's quite cutting when it comes to, you know, picking on people. And, and so it's, even, even if I was able to describe to you the names they used to call me, it probably wouldn't make much sense. Um, so one of the, one of the, the names that they used to call me um, was Puroku, which means, um, which means, um, uh, a feet that is still growing. That was the, the original translation. So in their, in their face, every time they saw me, my feet were getting bigger, right? So that's how, that's what they used to call me anyway. Now, we migrated to Australia in 1973, not knowing a word of English. I was 10. We returned to Paraguay in 1977, where I lost a year of study because I had to relearn Spanish and history in, in Spanish language. Eventually, we returned to Australia in 1982, after doing a lot of my high school years in Paraguay. And coming back to Australia, I, had to, I lost another year of study because I now had to do the whole HSC again. Why am I saying all of this? Because the things I once resented as a young person, the struggle and some of the the young people would understand, the mild setbacks in my upbringing, I actually consider those to be real assets in who I am today. And I say mild setbacks because compared to the experiences that I had compared to the, and compared to some of the experiences that you guys have had, mine was a stroll in the park. Right? And I've heard some of your stories. But those are the type of things that make you who you are today. Now let's look, let's go back to the Apostle Paul and his heritage. In Philippians chapter 3 verses 5 to 6. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Law for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. So just in these verses, Paul lists seven things that uh, are ascribed or, or achieved by him. Firstly, he states that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says he calls himself of the people of Israel. Then he goes more specifically, he calls himself of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a dinky die. Regarding the law, he calls himself a Pharisee. And he speaks of his zeal again. Himself, this is how zealous I was. I was persecuting the church. And again, in the seventh thing he mentions is with respect to the law, he doesn't describe himself as sinless, but as faultless with regards to the law. That's how much he was a stickler to the, to the law. And before meeting Jesus, Paul looked for merit 
in doing, in the doing of the law. And many of the churches that he founded, that he would go on to plant after his conversion, he would plant a church and false teachers would come after he had left and they would try to pull the people back toward Judaism, back to the law, back to a false gospel of works. But experience taught him that no sinner can be justified by their own works. No one can. And, and, and by constantly mentioning, therefore, his former devotion to the traditions of the fathers, he's basically saying, yeah, I've been there, done that. This is what exactly the way I used to live, he's saying to them. So, so therefore, his arguments were that much more powerful in his writings because of his experience from the inside. He knew what he was What about his education? Now, with his rich cross-cultural background, the Apostle Paul was equipped with all the natural qualifications for a truly universal apostleship. Everybody could understand where he came from. More than that, if that wasn't enough, more than that, he, was, he's, he had an intellectual gift that was truly amazing. Uh, had he remained a Jew, he would have become greater than Rabbi uh, Gamaliel and, and, and would have surpassed him in scholarship all of the rabbis uh, by a substantial amount. He was a sharp thinker, a deep mind that was, he was able to mingle with people at, at every level of society. So whether he was defending himself in the front of governors, uh, mingling with the rich and influential or discussing with philosophers in Athens or sharing with the simple man on the street, he understood, he was able to talk to people at different levels and, and that is not easy to do. And, but he never shows off his learning. But he couldn't conceal it either. And this is what the Apostle Peter wrote about Paul in 2 Peter 3.16. He writes the same way, this is, I'm quoting Peter here, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. His gifted genius, however, needed to be redirected, focused, sharpened. And God would do just that and use this crafted tool in the most amazing way and fully utilised Paul realised after his conversion. When you look at Paul and compare him to the other apostles, Paul was the only scholar amongst the apostles. Yes, Peter and John 
had natural genius but no scholastic education. They were fishermen. But Paul had both and through divine inspiration became the founder of what we now know today as Christian theology and philosophy. He knew the Hebrew and Greek almost by heart. He knew the Hebrew and Greek Bible almost by heart. Um, in his epistles, when he's addressing Jewish converts, he quotes from the Pentateuch, from the prophets, from the Psalms. And, and, and this was priceless because they didn't have access to the Bibles that we have today. There was no smartphones, there was no copy of the scriptures as we do today. No. If your synagogue had a copy of, 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 the, of the scriptures, you were, you were quite fortunate. Why am I saying this? Because having no access to the Old Testament, you think about the number of times that the Apostle Paul was locked up in prison and in prison is where he did most of his writing. With no access to the Old Testament, what did he rely on? The Holy Spirit and memory. He knew the scriptures and he would quote it. And the wonderful thing is that he remained humble, no reason for pride to the very end. He didn't do it to show off. And this is what he said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now these words that he uses here, words like uh, consider or, or count in another version or, or loss, they're actually accounting uh, terms used in profit and loss statements. Um, if you want to know what that means, Elizabeth can give you more education on, on she's an accountant, she can tell you what profit and loss statements means, right? If you look in your account and there's, it's in the negative, that means it's a loss, right? Just to give you a heads up. Once upon a time, Paul continually reflected on what he could do in his own strength to add even one ounce to his standing before God. This is what is, how can, what can I do more? What can I do more? Was his, so I can make it to heaven one day. But all the good works that he thought would gain him salvation were actually, rather than being the prophet, they were actually in the loss column. It, because if it was not Christ's righteousness, if, it, it, it'll be in the loss column. Yet most religions and most people today still believe you will, you, you would ask people, and, and I probably even think that some of us even here this morning still probably think that the only way we'll make it to heaven is if you have more good deeds than bad deeds. You add all your good deeds up and you add all your good bad deeds up and somehow you will only make it to heaven if your good deeds are more than your bad deeds. You're in a prophet, they say. 
Therefore, you're going to make it, you know, you get to the pearly gates and St. Pete says, oh, yeah, 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 you're in. That's how Islam works. That's how Buddhism works. This is how most of the religions of the world work. And most people believe this. Still believe this. Now, after his encounter with Christ, Paul dramatically discovered that a person can have tons of religion without one ounce of vision. Not one ounce. Why? Because salvation is a free gift of God through faith in Christ. It's all about grace. Now, I need to clarify something here. Please understand that he is not saying all my early life experience and education was a useless waste of time. He's not saying that when he's saying, I counted all as lost, as garbage and all that. He's not saying it was a waste of time. Because like I said before, all of his experience, good, bad and ugly, they were all part of who he was. And he would use them as part of his experience of Christ and sharing Christ with others. All of that cultural background, his education, would not be wasted. God never wastes any of your experience or mine. He will use it. And some of you have had pretty horrible experiences. But what God does through Christ is that he redeems it through the cross and he redirects it toward his glory if you will let him. If you will let him. Now, persecution in Acts, this was our first Bible reading, 7.55 to 8.3. And this is the occasion of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. So when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That would have been quite a sight, right? At that moment, the stones stopped hurting. At this, they covered their ears. They were probably throbbing at the mouth and all of that yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That was a prayer. As he was getting stoned, falling on his knees with his last breath, he's saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul was there 
He listened to this prayer, and that prayer would be answered how? For someone who was there, the Apostle Paul. The first answer to that prayer would be the Apostle Paul. Right there. Can you see how the circle is closing? And when he said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved or they're killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And Saul began to destroy, to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women, put them in prison. One of the things about the Apostle Paul is that whatever task he was dedicated it, he, he gave it his all. Full on. Undivided attention. I'm not even sure he slept, to tell you the truth. That's how dedicated he was to whatever task he was doing. He had this single-minded purpose which could be channeled for good or for bad. Fear was unknown to him. He didn't know fear, except the fear of God, which made him fearless of man. And so his fanaticism in persecution arose from his conviction that he was actually serving God in persecuting the Christians. So he persecuted in ignorance. And while that might have diminished his guilt, he was obviously still guilty. He didn't abolish his innocence, his guilt. He probably, as Circumstances would have. Well, he probably never saw Jesus until he appeared to him at the road of Damascus. And that's what we're going to be discussing next week. But with his Pharisaic education, he knew what was happening inside the Sanhedrin. And he regarded Jesus, like his teachers, as a false messiah, a rebel, a blasphemer, who was justly condemned to death. And he acted according to his conviction. Let's call him, he would have been a trainee Pharisee. He would have known all about what happened. And according to him, according to his conviction at the time, Jesus was simply a rebel blasphemer who was justly condemned to death years before. So after taking part in Stephen's death, he he was actually delighting in his death. This was only the start. He soon obtained a letter from the Sanhedrin. He obtained full power to persecute the scattered disciples. He entered the homes of believers. Any Christians here? A knock at the door, dragging out male, female, probably kids, took them to prison. And he set out for Damascus. He wasn't just happy with what was happening around Jerusalem. He was going to to Syria, the capital. The capital, Damascus, dragging up because there were Christians over there already as Christianity was starting to spread. He was determined to exterminate Christianity from the face of the earth for the glory of God. 
but at the height of his opposition. It was the beginning of his devotion to Christianity. That's how God would do it. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, and I tried, it says it again, I tried to destroy it. And, and, and listen to this, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was a genius. That's how good he was. Beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now he certainly doesn't try to whitewash his violent persecution of the Christians before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He actually, I was just talking to Ted this morning, he actually tells his testimony all up seven times. And he, while he doesn't go into details, he doesn't walk away from it. It's not like some people say, look, I don't want to talk about it, okay? He doesn't do that. He summarises his life prior to meeting Christ as one in which he sought to destroy the church. The word destroy was also used to describe the sacking of cities. So, you know, pillage and all that. He hated the church so much that he wanted to eliminate it totally. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-11 For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because, why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What you see is what you get. And his grace to me was not without effect. It didn't bounce off. It got in. It soaked in. It transformed me. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Finally, in the context of today's cancel culture and its insatiable search for justice to make things right somehow. Now just imagine, in that context, just imagine if, if you were Stephen's parents, for example, and the guest speaker next Sunday would be the Apostle Paul. Would you come? Would you come? Would you come and listen to him? Or would you be so enraged about what he did to your to your son that Yeah. I want nothing. Would he be cancelled in your sight and, and just totally, you know, I want nothing to do with it. I can't stand the guy. How would you be? And and I'm not trying to minimise any of the pain that 
some of, some of you might, might have gone through in your life. I'm not trying to minimise it at all. But what I'm saying is, think about it. And it's that very attitude that turned around a group of disciples. There was, there was just so few of them against the might of the Roman Empire. And, and, and it was the answer to prayer. Do not hold this sin against them. As he was getting stoned. And if his family was there, they would have listened to that prayer. And I'm sure they would have turned up to church. And here, this murderer turned to Christ and said, wow, you do. What argument are you going to present? If anyone, folks, if anyone should be able to speak of God's amazing grace, it should be those of us who have experienced it. And if you haven't yet, I pray that you will. Let it soak. Let it sit. Let it change you. Let it transform you into a new person. And and Paul's early experience, the fact that he did all this bad stuff towards Christians, actually, it was used by God to keep him humble. If that wasn't enough, if he needed a reminder, God sent him, on top of that, a thorn in the flesh to confirm what? To confirm that his grace is truly sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. Folks, in the face of Christ, there is no room for human pride. Not at all. All that we have, all that we are, are to be counted as loss for the sake of what? Of knowing him. Amen.